please welcome to the stage Dr. Roger Highfield, Professor Martin Rees, and Dr. Brian May. director here and welcome to the opening event of our monster summer of space season which will see all sorts of space related events until the end of August. It's an incredible pleasure uh, to welcome two rock stars of astronomy to the Science Museum tonight <laughs> to help celebrate humankind's greatest adventure, the Apollo moon landings. They don't really need any introduction whatsoever but I will introduce them anyway. First of all, we have astronomer royal, Lord Martin Rees. Martin's the author of On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, and it explores space travel along with things like robotics, AI, and climate change. And second, we've got astrophysicist and legendary queen songwriter and guitarist, Dr. Brian May. Brian's written Mission Moon 3D with David Iker, it's published by the London Stereoscopic Company and it's live streaming <laughs> this event to its Facebook page. Thank you, Brian. There will be signed copies of the event. We're going to range through the past, present, and future of space travel. But actually, first, Brian, just tell me a little bit about the, that rousing New Horizons video that uh, came before us. It's, uh, it's quite a long story, really, but I'll make it short. It was kind of commissioned because I'd been working with the New Horizons team under Alan Stern while they did the, uh, the, the flyby of Pluto a couple of years ago. And Alan just rang me up and said, I've got something very important to say to you. And I thought, what the hell is he going to do? And he said, I want you to write a, a piece of music for us for the, the, the flyby of Ultima Thule, which is the Kuiper Belt object which they visited after Pluto. Now, they didn't even know they were going to do that until they were past Pluto because nobody it hadn't been discovered. Um, and I said, how can I write a song about Ultima Thule? What rhymes with Ultima Thule? <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, ah, the mission is called New Horizons, and what does that mean? And suddenly the whole thing kind of unfolded in my mind. Uh, and I wrote it with Don Black, who's a very well-known and wonderful lyricist, an old friend of mine. And the thing became a celebration of man's endeavor to explore. Uh, which I thought was a, a great example, one of the finest examples ever. And he's the furthest man has ever been, four billion miles away. Of course, he's not there. There's no man in, in it. But the probe that he's made has, has gone that far. Now, what about Mission Moon 3D? We've got some uh, images coming up, I think, from the, uh, from the book. Just tell us a little bit, a bit about your love of um, stereoscopic imagery and how it came about and so on. Yeah, it's another very long story, really, but... Yeah, we all started with Weetabix when I was a kid because they used to cute. <laughs> <laughs> they used to give you little cards, which were 3D cards. I didn't know what it was in those days, about nine years old. And they said, send away a packet of them, one and sixpence, and you can get a viewer to see these things in 3D, which I did. And suddenly this hippopotamus, um, instead of being two little flat pictures, was like a real animal. And I, could feel, I felt like I could go through this... Uh, this frame and actually touch it. So I was knocked out, and I have been ever since. You know, I kept thinking when I was still young, 
you know, if you can make 3D pictures that are that real and that evocative, why would you bother with, uh, with flat pictures? Which we all do. So this book is, what we did was for this book, we uh, went back into the NASA archives and found lots of pictures which make 3D if they're combined. It takes a little bit of work sometimes to iron out the problems. But basically you need two points of view, the same as the two points of view that your eyes give you every day of your life. Um, and these two points of view for astro astronomical bodies have to be quite far apart. But you can find that. And uh, if everything in space rotates, so you can choose your moments and get a, a baseline that way. Um, the astronauts were actually trained to take 3D pictures, but mostly they forgot. Because there's kind of, <laughs> a lot on their minds, you know. Nevertheless, Michael Collins, well, the, his two mates are down on, on, the, on the walking on the moon. He's taking 3D pictures as his uh, module goes around. So we have those, and most of this stuff hasn't been seen up in this telescopic before. So you get your book, and the pictures that we worked months and months on, some of it while I was on tour with Queen, um, etc. And you get your viewer in the back, so you can see them in 3D. And I think we've got an example of two images that show one of the problems. I don't know if we can move on to the, the ghostly image. Uh, I'm staring at my... Right, here we are. Brian, so just talk us through this. This shows one of the problems you had to deal with in producing the book. This is funny, because everybody had reject this, rejected this as a stereo bed, because you can see there's a bit of a problem... There's a man in this one, and there isn't in that one. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened is Cernan uh, has, has been taking these panoramic pictures. He's actually not taking 3D, but when you're taking panoramic, panoramic, panoramic pictures like this, click, 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 you're actually moving and getting your baseline. So we chose these two pictures, put them together, and of course you get a ghost of Jack Smith who's walking through the scene, but with a little bit of work in Photoshop, you can restore it, and we managed to put him back in the room. So in the book, you'll see him... <laughs> fully fleshed judgment <laughs> on the moon. But it's a lot of fun to make these images, and they are so real. Um, Charlie Duke actually said it, it, it's the closest thing to being on the moon you can get without getting down there. But that's the best accolade. From the yeah. Apollo astronaut himself, but fantastic. Yeah. So I've said enough now, I think I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so Martin, yes. now, on the future, now, that came out last summer, mm -hmm. and it was sort of a follow-up to your 2003 book, Our Final Hour, and you were looking at all these awful existential threats mm. to humanity in the coming century. How, how are things looking now compared with 2003? I can't believe they're any rosier than they were then. Well, we know something better, but uh, let me just say that um, uh, any predictions I make should not be taken too seriously. <laughs> um, uh, I have the title of Astronomer Royal, <laughs> and sometimes people think I'm an astrologer, uh, between, uh, I've been asked sometimes, uh, uh, do you do the Queen's horoscope? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I respond to that by saying with a straight face, well, if she wants one, I'm the man she does. <laughs> but she hasn't yet. Um, and uh, I have uh, taken in one or two people, you know, and uh, made their predictions, and they listened with great attention to my predictions um, about stock market will fluctuate, etc., etc. But then I come clean. And I say, I'm actually just a scientist. And uh, my predictions, therefore, aren't very good. Almost as bad as those of economists, but not quite as bad as economists. <laughs> but anyway, that's a, a premise. But in my book, it's rather pretentiously called On the Future. And it is trying to look ahead. Um, and uh, there are two things which I discussed at the beginning of the book that you can predict. One is that by the middle of the century, we'll have a more crowded world. The world population now 7.7 billion, it'll be about 9 billion by then. 
and we'd have a warmer world due to the uh, CO2 production uh, by fossil fuels uh, inflation. So we can predict those things and I address uh, what we can do to cope with them. But then I also discuss future technologies, um, bio, cyber, AI, robotics, etc., and of course space, which is what we're here to talk about. And um, I think uh, if we look at space, then we're going to be celebrating the wonderful uh, uh, new moon landings just over 50 years ago, just under 50 years ago, and we are also going to be talking about space more generally. And I think uh, we'll talk about this more, but um, it's amazing when we look back at what they achieved with the much more primitive technology. Um, and uh, to go back to Brown's bill, let's remember that those pictures of Ultima Thule uh, were transmitted back by a very small transmitter, and the technology that was being used was at least 15 years out of date, because the probe was about 15 years on its journey, and of course you have to freeze a design several years before launch. And so if you think how iPhones have changed in the last 15 years, realize how much better we could do today and how exciting is the possibility of exploring the solar system with the most modern technologies. So I think we should be excited about that. And in my talk, I discuss near-term projects of that kind and also longer-term prospects of humanity in space. It's extraordinary what we can do with so little. I think Brian was saying that the amplifier on these horizons was what? 30 what, 30 what? 30 what? Yeah. 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 And like, as Martin says, you know, we're looking at basically the dial-up technology which we all used not that long ago. You know, the, the, the information for these wonderful beaches is coming back incredibly slowly, mm -hmm. as if it were you know, on a plane or something that we used. So let's wind back to July 69. Mm. Um, where were you both on the, the night of the moon landings and what, what did it mean to each of you? Brian, I'd like to start with you. Well, first, I was in Cornwall with my drummer, Roger Taylor, in his mum's house in front of a TV about that size, and I will never forget it, watching you know, these very grainy and hard to distinguish pictures, but there you could see the man go down from there, and he said, you know, this is one more step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So did you, you know, drink yourself to oblivion and joy? Oh, always. To need a moon to do that. No, 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 we drank tea. But it was something I will never forget, I must say, and it seems miraculous. I do remember my dad, who was in space aeronautics, a couple of years earlier saying, we won't get to the moon in my lifetime, I know we won't, but we did, it was an incredible achievement. And you've seen some of the recent um, moon landings fail, you know, and you think even now with a te enormous technologically we are advanced now, but it can still fail. If it had failed for those guys, we would have lost those wonderful pilots. They didn't. They didn't make a mistake. Buster, what about you? Where yeah. were you on that night? Well, I was at Cambridge. I was a young researcher working in the institute run by Fred Hoyle, and I do remember um, the night watching the um, one small step uh, in my college on the television they had there. Um, but then I remember going into work the next morning and seeing how excited Fred Hoyle was. He was more excited than me because he'd been thinking about this uh, for much longer than I had, for example, when he was young. And uh, I realized only fully when I talked to Fred Hoyle just what a big deal it was. I 
genuinely until I realized that the great man like Fred Hoyle really was so exciting. And uh, of course, in retrospect, it is really far more exciting. And of course, the other thing is, um, you just realize how risky it is. In fact, one, one thing I quote in my book is the speech which had been written by President Nixon's speechwriter to be uh, given uh, if they got stuck on the moon and never came back. It was a rather eloquent speech, and thank goodness they never had to use it. But of course, if we look back at that time, uh, it was touch and go. Uh, something could have gone wrong, and it could have been a disaster, and something could have been quite differently. But it is amazing that uh, none of the Apollo astronauts um, who actually went to the moon uh, failed to come back. I mean, Hall's a kind of fascinating figure. I mean, he was steady-state theories, and he big banged into nuclear synthesis and so on, and I think wrote science fiction yeah. as well. Uh, what, what, do, do you think it was just the, the sheer, uh, you know, the fact it was this epic human endeavor that excited him, or was it the technology? I think it was, it was both. I mean, he was certainly very interested in, um, in the technology, uh, but he, through science fiction, was interested. He speculated about the future. And uh, of course, one other hat on this was that there was a colleague of his called Tommy Gold, uh, who was famous for uh, thinking that there was very thick dust on the moon and that the astronauts would all sink down into it like a quicksand. And uh, I think he was quite glad that uh, Tommy Gold was wrong, not just for the many astronauts, but he liked to prove Tommy Gold wrong. <laughs> Something you, you said um, really resonates with me in the Science Museum about the seeming almost more incredible today than it did back then. Because you know we had Apollo 10, that did the dry run to the moon, and I think when people looked at Apollo 10, that little ground command module, 15, 20 years ago, um, they would have felt, oh, moon bases, Mars bases, there's a kind of inevitability about it. When I see people looking at it today. They, they look at it like they don't really believe that three men got to the moon in it. It seems it's an unusual object in the museum because most objects get a bit, bit banal and boring the older they get. Whereas actually Apollo 10 seems to be turning into a magical object. People can't quite believe it did what it did. Yeah, I mean, I hope they do believe. I don't have any time for the conspiracy <laughs> It's all very sucky. Just mention that. Yeah. But yeah, you look at it, and it's, it's almost impossible to believe that those people did it. It was incredibly crammed. And they had things to deal with which are not often talked about, like their bodily functions. You know, a lot of them got sick. And if they threw up, it was a major problem because of, it, it fills your whole capsule. And if it, had, if it had happened on the moon, they would have died because there's no way that can clear itself in, in, in small amount of gravity in a spacesuit. Yes, um, and again, the technological and the human part of it, I think, was almost unbelievable because it needed them to be skillful pilots, particularly Neil Armstrong. You know, that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't had the incredible presence of mind to steer to a place which hadn't been planned and land the thing. They almost ran out of fuel, didn't they? Close as, a, as anything, yes. Amazing. So it, it really was a great human endeavor. In fact, we had on this stage, and I think you, you were there as well, Brian, Leonov, mm. Alexei Leonov, who was in the mid-60s practicing to be the first Soviet cosmonaut on the moon. He would have and, been. And when you talk to Leonov about the margins for a Soviet landing, they make the American one look very luxurious indeed. Ten seconds yeah. in a single cosmonaut land, I think he would have come a cropper. Yeah, of course, he does have the great honor of being the first man to walk into yeah. the cosmos and nearly didn't make it back. 
space suit ballooning. There are images in your book. Actually. Yeah, he couldn't get back in. Imagine that. You're stuck out in space and you can't get back in. <coughs> so he had an incredible presence of mind. They were, they were amazing people. And we've both had the pleasure of working with Neil Armstrong, haven't we? And what an amazing inspiration. You've both given talks, haven't you, with Neil Armstrong, sort of sitting in the front row. That must be a yes. <laughs> Tell your story first. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, <laughs> this was at the American Academy, where he was made a, a new member, and the new members had the front row, and I was giving a, a talk, and uh, uh, he was sitting there, seemed to be taking notes. Maybe he was doing the crossword, I don't know. But he was there to talk to him afterwards, and uh, he came to England once or twice after that, I saw him. But... Uh, um, that was my experience. Yours was similar? Yeah, I was at the very first Star Wars Festival, which had given me oh, so yeah. much. Mm-hmm. And I'd already written my talk, which was, why are we in space? And should we be in space? And I suddenly realized I was going to give this talk to Neil Armstrong again and many other astronauts and cosmonauts. And I really nearly lost my bottle because I thought, you know, how dare I go up there and say that maybe man shouldn't be in space? I was actually saying that the majority of men shouldn't be in space. I wasn't going to say. Anyway, I just thought, what is he going to think? After my talk, Neil Armstrong came back and said, you were right to say that. He said, it's time that humanity got itself together before it goes en masse into space. And he he ended up his talk with with something very similar. He said, um, and I don't know whether it was because of that conversation or not, but he said, let's hope that we we see the last century as as a century of human and technological endeavor and let's hope the next century is about the improvement in human character. Now, that's still how I feel. I don't think we should be going into space polluting it the same way as we polluted our own wonderful planet. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing which we should remember is that uh, at the time when we had the Apollo landings, I think most of us thought there'd be footprints on Mars yeah. long before today. Yeah. And indeed, there would have been had there been a motive, because the Apollo program uh, was supported by 4% of the American federal budget. NASA's budget now is 0.6%, because the 4% was funded not for science, but simply for uh, superpower rivalry to get there before the Russians. And uh, for that reason, um, we know <coughs> no one after 1972 has been beyond low Earth orbit. And uh, this is remarkable, because um, uh, I'm old enough, as is Brian, to remember this as an event which we hopefully will never forget. But of course, for many people in the audience, and certainly all my students, it's um, long before they were born. It's ancient history. Students know that the Americans landed a man on the moon. They know the Egyptians built pyramids, because these both seem uh, uh, mysterious national goals motivated by uh, 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 reasons that we can't fully understand. And uh, it is very odd, really, that for younger people, it's a historical thing. Uh, whereas uh, uh, we grew up to think of it as futuristic and thinking it as a first step towards a program that would have led to uh, humans being on Mars and maybe elsewhere long before today. So, Martin, do you think if Cold War rivalry had persisted, we would have Mars bases by now? Um, I, I don't think so, because uh, uh, I think the Americans asserted that um, this, this uh, would show their preeminence, and it did. Um, but I think if we look to the future and think of a revival of the Apollo spirit, which perhaps we'll talk about later, um, I think uh, uh, th- there could be a superpower rivalry among China, because, of course, 
China has the resources and the Jewish government to run a program uh, rather like the Apollo program. And of course, um, if they wanted to assert their superpower parity with the United States, it wouldn't be enough to go back to the moon and do what the Americans had done more than 50 years earlier. They'd have to do a further great leap forward and go to Mars. So you can imagine that there could be a potential uh, standoff uh, like it was in the Cold War where China would feel motivated to assert its uh, superpower supremacy by being the first to land on Mars. I don't think that's very likely, but I think that's a possibility. Martin, you mentioned the, the speech that had been prepared because it all went horribly wrong. And in fact, uh, fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. Um, what do you both think would have happened if um, Apollo 11 had gone wrong? Some bad things happened you know, early on in the space program. We, we lost astronauts and we lost cosmonauts and they carried on. But I think that amount of visibility at that point in the program would have killed it a bit. I don't know what you think, Martin. Yes. I mean, I'm not sure because I think everyone realized it was extremely risky. And I, I suspect the astronauts and the American public would have uh, wanted uh, to continue and try and succeed. Um, it was different later because I think one of the problems with the later Raven space program when they launched the shuttle, uh, was that uh, they became very risk averse. And the shuttle, uh, which uh, uh, was less dramatic, it took people over into lower orbit, into the space station, um, and uh, uh, it was launched, I think, 135 times. And there were two spectacular failures when the crew of seven uh, uh, was all killed. And uh, uh, each of those was a NASA trauma in America um, and delayed the program by three years while they tried to make it safer still. Um, but of course, the 2% risk is something quite acceptable to test pilots and also uh, to adventurers. And so I think what went wrong was that, uh, whereas I think everyone accepted the Apollo astronauts were adventurers taking big risks, they tried to present launches of the shuttle as being routine. They sent up uh, a woman school teacher and all that. And I think that was a big mistake to um, talk about it as though it was like tourism. Um, and uh, then that made people feel that it really had to be safe. And that increased the expense. And I personally think that a revival of manned space flight going beyond Earth orbit will have to be the consequence of reversal of their attitudes so that they are prepared to accept risks and people know these people are risking their lives like those who do uh, dangerous sports. And of course, that, uh, that uh, will, will revive the glamour because people going around in orbit um, in the space station, they never really made the news unless something went wrong. If the news didn't work, <coughs> or if Chris Hadfield played his guitar and sang, <laughs> not in that That's what made the news. The routine yeah. stuff yeah. in the space station didn't make the news, didn't inspire people. Just to pick up on the point that you made, Brian, you know, it, the Apollo missions were so incredibly televised that, you know, you, you felt like you were, the whole world was looking over their shoulders. And actually, one of the things that really sticks in my mind is Alexei Leonov, who wanted to be the first on the moon. The Russians could never get their heavy launch vehicles to work properly. But he, he described how no one in the Soviet Union could see the Apollo moon landings, but he went to a technical institute outside Moscow and he could watch them 
uh, go down. And again, he was amazed that the Americans were so public uh, in everything that they didn't have the extraordinary news control that they had in the Soviet Union. And actually, there was a sort of sweet moment when there was incredible camaraderie, when it was clear that he he was cheering on, you know, Armstrong and Aldrich to get down safely. Yeah, of course, they didn't have any contact at that time, and they did not share information, which led to some very unnecessary deaths, particularly the, the, the business of oxygen being used as a way of breathing uh, medium inside the capital, which killed Russians first, and then it killed Yes, and they didn't know each other until much later when they got together at sort of events, media events, and then they became very, um, very close because they'd shared these experiences in different uh, different ends of the earth, but very similar experiences. Wonderful to watch them at Starmus. I think I have pictures of Alexei and and, and Graham actually in the book um, discussing stuff which perhaps you know, they never had the opportunity until that moment. Wonderful. Those men experienced stuff which no one has ever experienced. I know you were very close to um, the late great Patrick Moore, um, astronomer, uh, also a big TV personality as well. Um, we were very lucky in the museum to acquire his collection. And he plays quite a special role in the moon landings as well, doesn't he? I don't know if you can tell Absolutely. us Absolutely. Well, for a start, he mapped the moon. He was one of the great cartographers of the moon. And the, the Apollo people did actually use some of his data to plan the, the missions. Also, he was the commentator on the English TV broadcast, and so he's the, the person who brought the moon landings to the British public. I think probably the greatest outreach astronomer of all time, Patrick. And uh, I, was, I was very fond of him. He became a sort of honorary uncle of mine um, and brought me back to astronomy after I'd spent 30 years doing something else. I think. <laughs> 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 and he said, oh, you could do your, you could finish off your PhD. And I went, I can't, my brain doesn't work. He Absolutely, yes. Yeah. He said, you could do it, but of course you can. You could. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, I did. I went back to Imperial College and knuckled down for a year and got the PhD. All thanks to Patrick. And you deal a bit with Patrick as well. Did you speak to the Royal Society? And I, I did. He was made an honorary member of the Royal Society. And I remember uh, appearing at his house on, I think, the 600th um, anniversary of the um, uh, Sky Night program. I mean, he got made mobile then, but everyone wanted to go to his house and see all his artifacts, etc. Um, so he was a wonderful person. But the other good thing about him was that he had time for amateur groups. He spent a great deal of his time, as, as you'll know, going around to talk to small groups, etc., and he answered letters, etc. So he was extremely committed, and um, uh, he was the face of astronomy for um, most of the British public for several decades. Amazingly prolific as well. I remember commissioning to write a piece for me when I was a science editor mm -hmm. in the Daily Telegraph, and um, you could almost hear him bashing out the piece on this manual typewriter in about five minutes. I mean, he really could write quickly and accurately and well. Yes, and of course, um, uh, his skill really was uh, to be able to uh, absorb information quickly, you know. Uh, there are many people who, um, it's something you explain to them, can stand up and have a camera and talk without hesitation, deviation, or repetition of <laughs> uh, in a clear way. And that's what he could do, and that's a very rare skill. He had a wonderful facility. He could give, he'd say, you've got 60 seconds, Patrick, to do this. He would dig it in to the nail, you know. Yeah. And that's the, that's the end of the story. And it would be 60 seconds. It would be off. He was the ultimate professional communicator.
So what about today? The, the, what, what, first of all, your, your feelings um, about Apollo 50 years on, has it grown in importance for you or diminished? Or Martin, how do you feel about it? Um, well, I think it seems far more remarkable in retrospect uh, than it did at the time. Uh, but I think it does raise the question of what is the future of mass space flight? Because, of course, uh, although uh, Apollo was the high point of man's space flight up till now, uh, space exploration has developed hugely over those 50 years. Uh, we've had exploration of the planets, all of them, and uh, uh, we've had uh, use of space for all kinds of practical purposes. We use every day for sat-nav communication, weather forecasting, all that. So space has become an essential part of our lives in a practical way. So we should cheer that on. But of course, in terms of the inspiration, etc., cetera, uh, it, there's been nothing quite like Apollo. Yeah. And the question is, will it revive? And I discussed this a bit in my, my book. I think my view is that um, uh, unless the Chinese want to do a space spectacular, um, it'll be very hard to justify um, doing a massive space project and do it with enough safety constraints to make the American public or the European public happy with it. And just, to, just to be specific, we're talking about human space flight here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, the other point is that the practical case for sending people is now much weaker because robots can do so much more. I mean, up to, up to now, we've had to have people who actually um, uh, look at the geology of Mars and things like that. Um, but in future, Robots will be able to do this more cheaply. They'll be able to fabricate structures in space or on the moon. And uh, we'll, we'll need to send people. But I think we still hope that people will go into space. And I think they will. But they will go as adventurers prepared to take high risk. People with the same mindset as those who do dangerous sports, those who um, hang glide in Yosemite, who uh, go around the world in balloons and things like that, or the ancient explorers um, of the uh, 10, 16th and 17th centuries. We need people like that. And they're prepared to take higher risks than taxpayers can impose on people they're paying for. And that's why I think the future of manned spaceflight lies with these private companies. Uh, the most prominent are uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, which are run by Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, um, uh, two of the richest people in America, who are exciting, uh, excited by these technocratic possibilities. Would you go as far as to say that actually we've squandered money on human spaceflight in the last decade? I mean, say the International Space Station. I, I seem to remember you've said yes. some unkind things about that in the past. Well, I think I have. And if we look back at the International Space Station and the shuttle, a white elephant come into my mind actually. Uh, Yes, well, certainly not worth the 12-figure sum, yeah. which it cost over 30 years. Of course, many uh, astronomers, like Tommy Gold, were against it right from the start. And I think it is clear that uh, uh, the scientific output was minimal, and uh, I think one could have done far more for the money. And if we look at the high points of space in the intervening 50 years since Apollo, um, it's been the Hubble Space Telescope and the exploration of the wonderful pictures zoomed back from the outer planets, don't things like that. Don't you think he's ruining a romantic space? <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of go along with what, 
exciting things. I get most excited these days by lots of these NASA missions, none of which are landing, but they're going to go a lot further than a man could ever go. You can't get to Jupiter as a man. It's not practically not going to happen. It takes a lifetime, and you, could, you couldn't possibly get to Pluto, but these probes are so intelligent now. They've gone there, and they take all the pictures you want to, you know, you can be a tourist without ever stepping out of your... Your your um, your room with your your TV, you know, and um, I find that very exciting. The Rosetta mission, which went to a comet, mm. um, the New Horizons from Pluto, and uh, the new Osiris Rex, which has gone to a, an asteroid. I'm very much involved in looking at the pictures that are coming back. They're wonderful. You don't have to be there, and actually, it'd be very uncomfortable to be there because there's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, and you, all yeah. you've got to do is think about getting back, which is going to be hard. So I'm with you, Martin. Really. I most exciting stuff is happening before our very eyes. Yes, but on the other hand, that's the reason why I don't think NASA or ESA should do this. But on the other hand, if these private companies choose to do it, and people are prepared to go, uh, accepting high risks, then I think we should cheer them on. Absolutely. And I think there will be such people. Absolutely. And uh, uh, they, they, they will go back to the moon. Um, already people have bought tickets to, um, to go around the backside of the moon and come back. I would love it. I've got a yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. And there's yes. a, a, I think uh, a Japanese has uh, bought tickets for him and seven friends to go around the backside of the moon going further from Earth than any human has been before. A five-day <coughs> trip. There's also talk about uh, uh, a trip uh, to, to Mars where you don't land but just go around it. Uh, this would take 500 days and uh, would indeed be very boring. And um, uh, and it'd be cooked up, and so the um, uh, well, the, the ideal crew that it will be uh, a stable middle-aged couple, happy to be cooked up together, and old enough they don't care too much about radiation damage. And so this is an idea. But but more seriously, I think there will be people who will want to go. Um, and um, Elon Musk himself has said that he would uh, hope to die on Mars, but not on impact. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and this is not a crazy aspiration 30 or 40 years from now uh, so if you ask me to bet I think that by the end of the century there will be uh, a group of pioneers living probably on Mars um, they'll be privately funded privately sponsored um, and they'll be the kind of people like Sir Randolph Fines for instance or um, uh, people who take very high risks in climbing um, and uh, uh, I think we should cheer them on for all kinds of reasons you talk about the, the revival, some people do talk about the revival of the Apollo spirit. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the, the moon is a bit of a diversion and Mars is the big prize now? Um, or do you think there is a value to um, putting a staging post on, on the moon? I know there's been talk about telescopes on yeah, the yeah. far side of the moon and all that stuff, but uh, a colony on the moon. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the idea of some sort of base for some putting science on the moon is, is worthwhile. Um, mining the moon, I'm not sure about. I mean, so some things perhaps are worth mining from the moon or from asteroids if you want to build something in space from them. But the idea of mining stuff on the moon to bring it to the Earth, I don't think that's ever going to make economic sense. Um, so uh, I think Mars is obviously the big challenge, and there will be people who want to go even on one-way uh, trips to Mars. And I think we should cheer them on, just like we cheer on people who do other sort of extreme Any astronomer would love to sit on the moon and, yeah, yeah. and observe the universe because there's no pollution, there's no, no in the way. What a wonderful thing. 
I would never see this Adarka light, which is my subject tonight. Mm -hmm. yeah, please. Mm -hmm. I would love to do it. I'm probably too old now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the idea of, of having a colony on the moon to do that kind of stuff is very attractive. And it's not that far away, mm -hmm. relatively, the, the stuff we've been talking about. The thing is, hey, uh, oh, you might go to the world and buy my ticket. I look like old enough. Maybe oh, I one day. Yeah. We were going to twin, uh, do a concert on, on this big arena, but they said there's no atmosphere. I've completely brought the whole thing down. <laughs> so, in terms of um, folks <laughs> swiftly moving on, <laughs> Martin, in terms of candidates for where, where would you put a moon base if you were to? to go ahead with that, because there are, there are some favoured spots. Well, that's right, if you move based, uh, there's a craters near the lunar pole, there's one called the Shackman Crater, which has walls about four cubits high, and this has the virtue that uh, um, in the bottom, it's very cold indeed, no sunlight gets in, so you might have ice there and water, um, but on the other hand, at, on the sides of the crater, on the rim, then there's always some light. So the idea would be to uh, have the base on the top of the rim of one of these craters at the uh, uh, lunar pole. I think that would be the best bet. Because then the, the temperature doesn't have the big range, which it does everywhere else on the moon, where you have two weeks of darkness and then two weeks of light. You could go as well. Would you go? Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't go really, I don't think. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but it would be tempting, wouldn't it? I just wanted to explore with both of you is um, there's sort of a discussion about um, you know we need a, a plan B because we're degrading the environment of planet Earth and obviously that's uh, central to the themes that in your past two books Martin but do you think that's a, a dangerous way of thinking I know that you know Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have talked about having a, a plan B but, but, but you know how do you feel about well, uh, I think that's a dangerous delusion. As I said, I, I think that uh, there will be a few crazy pioneers living on Mars by the end of the century, and I think we should cheer them on for reasons which I can mention a bit later, perhaps. Um, but the idea of mass emigration to Mars um, is, I think, a dangerous delusion, um, because it's far easier to deal with climate change on the Earth than to terraform Mars. And uh, living on Mars is far less comfortable than living at the South Pole or the top of Everest or somewhere. Um, so I, I don't really see uh, much virtue in this, nor actually in the different idea which Jeff Bezos has uh, of having um, a huge uh, free-floating colonies. He's reviving an idea the guy called O'Neill had in the 1970s of having huge cylinders um, several miles long which spin very slowly. And according to O'Neill, you would have a what looks like a Californian suburb on the inside of them, you know, with the artificial gravity from the centrifugal effects. Um, and uh, Bezos has the idea that lots of people want to live up there, and perhaps not so crazy that industry can be put out into space. That's not crazy, but if that is done, it can probably best be done by robots mm. and not by people. So I genuinely think that uh, mass migration of people to Mars or into space is unlikely and it'll be something for adventurers. But uh, just, just to go on to why I think this, um, uh, as an astronomer, um, 
I am aware that not only are we the result of four billion years of evolution, forget from primordial slime to us, but we're not the culmination. The time ahead is at least as long. The Earth will go on for about five billion years before the sun flares up and dies, and the universe will go on forever. And to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> so we are at an important transition stage in the cosmic evolution, the stage where perhaps um, there's no more Darwinian selection, but we will have a sort of secular intelligent life when uh, uh, we can uh, modify human beings by genetic uh, adaptation and maybe even download ourselves into sort of electronic form. Now, this is certainly possible, perhaps by the end of the century, but obviously we're going to regulate this for all kinds of reasons, prudentialists on the Earth. But imagine these people in space, on Mars. They're away from all the regulators. They're ill-adapted to where they are on Mars. So they will use all these techniques of genetic modification and cyborg techniques to adapt to this hostile environment. They'd have the motive and the opportunity. And, uh, and so within a few centuries, they'll have evolved into a completely different species. And if they become electronic rather than flesh and blood, then of course they may not be in atmosphere anymore, they may prefer zero G, and they may be near immortal. So then they would go off into the blue yonder, maybe far beyond the solar system. So you could think on a very long astronomical time scale that this century um, is crucial. It will be the century where we jumpstart a completely new kind of evolution, which happened on the technological time scale, not on the biological time scale, and that could lead to uh, um, uh, exploration um, far beyond even our solar system. But this is a post-human, not a human enterprise. Just winding back to the human enterprise, yeah. Brian, what, do, you, do, you, do you feel the, um, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary kind of epic vision there, but that, that basic question, Brian, about um, you know, off-world colonies actually distracting us from very earthly problems and so on, do you have a strong feeling about that? I have strong feelings about the way we treat our planet and the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat the other creatures on this planet. Yeah, I think we have it completely wrong. I think we've spoilt everything, imagining that the human race is the only important thing. And I th I, there's, there's no evidence that I see to support that view. I think an alien coming on, along uh, wouldn't naturally assume that the human being was the best part of creation. So yes, I have a serious issue with it. And if we take that kind of um, behavior into space, if there were other creatures out there, we wouldn't be very well equipped to deal with that. Um, so yeah, I have an issue. I mean, I would like to see us restart the way we treat each other on the planet. Maybe before we start this kind of trying to push ourselves. But I'm fascinated by your your vision of the far future because the, these AI uh, creatures are our descendants, right? They are they are part of our evolution. That's the way you see it. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. But 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 of course, uh, um, whether this is important cosmically depends on the questions we're most often asked as astronomers. Are we alone? Is there life out there already? Well, I was going to ask you, yeah. if, we, if we encounter an alien, yeah. you're, you seem to be suggesting it's bound to be machine intelligence rather than well, flesh and blood intelligence. Yes, but of course, the first thing is we don't know if there are intelligent aliens. It's worth a look, uh, and right. of course there are projects to look. Um, but uh, if 
if, if uh, life on Gilbert is unique to the Earth in the galaxy, then I think the important point I want to make is that doesn't mean that life will forever be a trivial feature of the cosmos, because in the billions of years that lie ahead, life seeded from Earth went straight through the galaxy. So we're not even at the halfway stage of the emergence of complexity. But on the other hand, uh, as you say, it's quite possible that uh, life exists in many, many places in the galaxy and maybe has evolved beyond our stage. And um, I indeed think that we should look for any evidence for uh, artificial entities, artificial transmissions. And I also think that if we detect something, it will be uh, something uh, which is um, created by an electronic intelligence, not a flesh, flesh and blood, blood one. And that's simply an analogy of the Earth, because, uh, as I said, it's taken four billion years for us to evolve, and we've had humans for less than a million years, we've had technology for 10,000 years at most, um, and maybe within a few centuries, that will be taken over by um, uh, non-human entities, more intelligent, and they will have billions of years ahead of it. So it's unlikely that if we found an Earth-like planet on which there'd been an evolution, that we'd catch it in this sliver of time when it's got intelligent flesh and blood creatures on it. Either it could be far behind us, in which case it'd be Earth in September, or it could be far ahead, in which case we would detect not something on the planet itself, but maybe some entities somewhere in um, interstellar space. We were scanning lots of frequencies, aren't we? Yeah, um, if we're looking for signs of water, but it sounds to me like you you think that this might be a rather parochial view of a possibility. Well, I mean, I think we've no idea what to look for, so I think it's important that astronomers should always be on the lookout for something surprising, um, and also um, to look for artifacts. I mean, so some huge structure in space, or even some uh, asteroid that looks especially round and shiny, as it were, which could be a. Arthur C. Clarke reminded us that it could be something left by an external civilization. It, the chance of this is small, but it's so exciting that it's worth an effort, and it's very good that there are uh, some private people, in particular Yuri Milner in California, who's funding a, a program to do more systematic searches for evidence of something artificial. So I think it's worthwhile doing this. Have you been involved in, in search for extraterrestrial intelligence or SETI, Brian? No, I, I know some people from SETI, and uh, <coughs> it, it's, no, it's not really my area. Um, instinctively, I could be wrong, but I, and I'm unusual in this, I don't know what your feeling is, Ronnie, but I, I kind of think that it's possible that in spite of the billions and billions of Earth-like planets which we know out there, it is possible that this is the only time this happened. There's such a gap in our knowledge, we don't know how these primitive organic molecules got to the point where they could reproduce for a start and where they could evolve, because you can't evolve without reproduction. Um, and I don't think anybody knows yet. I don't think we can even hazard a guess. So supposing we were the only time in the universe where this happened, it gives a very different view of... I think those questions may be answered in the next 20 or 30 years mm. in two ways. First, uh, as you say, the origin of life the transition from chemistry to the first replicating, metabolizing entities we call alive. That's not understood. No. And it's one of these problems which scientists have realized is important, 
that they put in a too difficult box, as it were. Whereas now, there are very serious people working on it. And I think we will know within 20 years um, uh, how life began here on Earth and whether it was a rare accident, whether it would have happened elsewhere, and whether the, um, the, 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 the basis of DNA or RNA is unique or whether it's different. So we might understand that. But the other thing, of course, is that um, the biggest excitement in astronomy in the last 10, 20 years, in my view, has been discovering that uh, most other stars in the sky are orbited by wet and loose planets, just as the Earth and the Sun orbit the Earth and the uh, other planets orbit our Sun. And uh, we've already uh, identified evidence of thousands of these planets, and it seems that one star in five or thereabouts will have a planet rather like the Earth, orbiting it. Like the Earth in the sense it's like the size of the Earth, and a distance from its parent star, such as water could exist. And at the moment, those planets, even around the nearest stars, are too faint to be directly detected. We know they're there by two techniques, either observing a star and that it gets slightly dimmer if a planet transits in front of it, or by detecting a small wobble in the motion of a star due to the gravitational pull of a planet. We don't directly observe these planets, but the next generation of telescopes would, in particular, the European Southern Observatory, which is a consortium that we belong to and will belong to despite Brexit, <laughs> this is going to be the world's best telescope, um, and it's going to be in Chile. It'll have a mirror 39 meters across. That's, I think, probably uh, bigger than the width of this lecture hall. Uh, not one sheet of glass, but a mosaic of 800 sheets of glass. And this will collect enough light to be able to analyze the light from a planet like the Earth orbiting star like the sun. And of course, this will give us some clues, as the great James Lovelock first realized, to whether the atmosphere has been affected by something alive. So within 20 years, uh, we may uh, know two things. We may know how life began on the Earth and how rare it is. We may know whether there's anything alive on nearby planets orbiting other stars. But of course, even then, it could be that the uh, step from simple life to intelligent life yeah. um, involves so many contingencies that that could still be grand. Yeah. I, I didn't realize until recently, because in the last century, there was a popular view that if you got some carbon and some oxygen and hydrogen and put a spark through them, there's a good chance that you would be able to make life, right? Yeah. There's been lots of films about Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, which led to, yeah. But in fact, the, the research, the genome research now indicates that all life on this planet, I don't think you know this, I was shocked, comes from one event. So not just all humans, all mammals, all insects, all plant life, all uh, protozoa, all bacterial life from one event, it seems, that, that the whole tree comes from. Which to me is shocking. You know, did it happen more than once? Did it nearly happen another time? It nearly happened and just one survived. Yeah, did it happen twice and one side obliterated the other? We don't know, but there's only evidence of this happening once on this incredibly rich planet of ours. What do you think about though, this, following on from that, the speculation that um, if you look at um, what are called extremophiles on Earth, mm -hmm. which are bugs that can put up with those extraordinarily tough environments, you know, they dine on wet rock three miles underground, they're floating over our heads, they're in 
highly sorting environments. And given that there was, through impacts of big objects, exchange of material between Mars and Earth, and there was water on Mars, isn't it kind of inevitable that there's going to be at least some simple life on Mars? Or do you think I'm getting ahead of myself? No, I think that, that, is, that is possible. I mean, people will be Martians, because the life could start on Mars or come to the Earth. And it's, it's then, that therefore means that if we detected something living on Mars, some uh, frozen bacteria or something, it wouldn't indicate an independent origin. And that's why, incidentally, what is really exciting is we defined life in the outer solar system. Uh, under the ice of Europa, which is a planet, uh, a moon of Jupiter, or Enceladus, a moon of Saturn. Because if you found life something swimming under that ice, that almost certainly couldn't have uh, come from the Earth or vice versa. And that would immediately tell us that the galaxy was full of life. Because if it had evolved quite independently in one planetary system, then that suggests it's not rare. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, it's very important, I think, to do all we can to try and explore these other planets by sending robotic submarines to go under the ice of those two moons, etc. That would be very exciting. Um, but uh, uh, we, we just don't know at the moment. Now, I think we should take a couple of questions from the audience. So we've got, we've got one there. If you can wait until you get the microphone, there's one here. While the microphones are heading away, Martin, you're on the Papal Academy of Sciences. How, how's the Pope going to react you, when, yes, when, they, when, they, uh, when they find uh, life on Europa? That's going to be a bit, of a bit of a tricky one, isn't it, for the Jesuit astronomers in the Vatican? No, I think they've taken that on board. Right. Okay. Let's yeah, have yeah. the first question. Fire away. Hello. Oh, it works. Um, Fred Hoyle was fascinated by the idea that it would be possible to send a genome into outer space through radio signals. You'll remember his very famous novel, A for Andromeda. Mm -hmm. We have the human genome now. Could we just do that? Send it to outer space? Um, uh, I think we could. And um, uh, this is the question is, would someone understand this at the other end? Um, but uh, we, we could do that, yes. Um, and of course, that's a, a, a faster way to transmit uh, information um, than actual panspermia, which yeah. is the, uh, uh, the topic. And, and Fred Hall, incidentally, uh, he believed in panspermia. He thought that life had come, come to the Earth um, from elsewhere, a comet or something like that. Um, and I think the reason he believed that is he thought life was very rare indeed. And he had also believed, as uh, Roger mentioned, in a steady state theory that has infinite past. And so if you have an infinite past, then there's more chance of something very rare happening. Mm -hmm. And so you push back the origin. Um, but in the case of, uh, now we believe in the Big Bang, all you do is get a factor of two in time, because the first <coughs> planets couldn't be more than twice as old as the, as the Earth, really. And so that, I think, weakens the case of transpermia. And in the far future, uh, when one imagines that uh, uh, post-humans are trying to spread through the galaxy, then, of course, one idea is that they could, they could send genetic material the other is that um, if, if there was someone intelligent out there, they could just send the blueprint. I know the American genetics uh, pioneer, Craig Venter, talked about doing genomics on Mars and then reconstructing your Mars bug back on Earth if you get a genome. Anyway, let's have the, the, the next, um, next question. Fire away. Hi, Frank. I'm a, a science comedian. Nice to see you again. <laughs> um, 
of all the infinite possibilities of, of future missions, not including things that are already in the works like the James Webb Telescope, I'm kind of curious for each of you, what really motivates you, what excites you the most about space in general, and what missions that aren't necessarily planned yet would you like to see in the near future? What space, but like what object would you like studying? <laughs> what type of mission, yeah. crewed or uncrewed? Well, I think for me, the number one question would be, is there life out there? So any experiments uh, that can uh, uh, diagnose the possibility of life by any technique, I would give priority to. Um, the other uh, uh, issue, of course, is um, uh, how do we understand the very early Big Bang? The amazing thing uh, of astronomy and cosmology is that uh, when I was a student, we didn't know there'd been a Big Bang, whereas now we can uh, say with a few percent precision what it was like at all stages after the first nanosecond. Because a lot happened in the first nanosecond <laughs> which we don't understand at all yet. So that's the other big challenge. And there are ways of probing that by looking for gravitational waves of the Big Bang and things of that kind. I would like to see someone coming up with an experiment which could determine the actual size of the universe. Because we not very well, it's not very clearly discussed. Everybody talks about the size of the universe, but we, what's being discussed is the size of the observable universe. We know how big that is. We have no idea whatsoever what is outside that bubble. So, supposing you went from here to the edge of the observable universe, what would you see? Would it be the same? Would you get more? How many times could you do that? And I would love to see someone de devise an experiment just to find out if it's infinite or if it's finite. And if it's infinite, we don't need to have multi multiple universes. It is a multiple universe, which means there's another one of me and there's another one of you someplace because of the laws of chance. Uh, so I would like to see that. It's a bit of a far-reaching request. But <laughs> suppose there's some experiment we could do to see if there's another universe next door to us. Well, I think we might get clues because if we understood the first tiny, tiny fraction of a second, uh, then... Uh, uh, we would know which of the many theories for that uh, was the correct one. Um, and uh, there are some which predict many big bangs and not just one, and they're very speculative. But if we had a theory which was sort of battle-tested, just to explain some things we cannot know, uh, then if it predicted uh, many big bangs, um, then uh, we, we would take it seriously. And uh, there's one theory by a uh, famous Russian cosmologist called uh, Andrei Linde, which is called eternal inflation. This is in the sense of our grand steady state theory, where Big Bang just forms all the time. And um, uh, he takes this very seriously. In fact, to tell one anecdote, I was on a panel with him uh, at Stanford, um, and uh, the um, person who was chairing it asked us, um, uh, on the scale, would you bet a goldfish or your dog or your life? How seriously <laughs> would you take the idea of the multiverse? And I, I said, well, I was nearly at the dog level. <laughs> <laughs> and Andre Linde uh, said he'd almost bet his life because he'd spent 25 years developing this theory called eternal inflation. And he took it very seriously indeed. His life, not his wife. But then, um, uh, uh, later, uh, the great theorist Stephen Weinberg was told about this, and he takes the 
was the criteria. He says he's happy to bless Martin Rees's dog and that made him very polite. Sorry to lower the tone. <laughs> in terms of the current repertoire of space missions and your passion for stereo imagery, um, we are getting more stereo images, aren't we, from Mars and places like that, or am I deluding myself? We're getting them from everywhere, yes, and I, I like to encourage that. I'm a sort of evangelist for stereo photography. Most people, it, it tends to get swept under the carpet until people actually see it in the view, and they go, oh, wow, I get a big wow from everyone the first time they see a comet or, a, or an asteroid or a piece of something on the surface of, of one of the many rocks in our solar system. And the feeling of being there is incredibly powerful. You get a much more instinctive idea of understanding that thing. You, know, you can plot graphs forever, you can put statistics uh, in tables, but actually seeing it in the way that we experience the world right here, very powerful. So yes, I mean, I'm hoping to put out a book called Rocks in the next couple of years, which will be about every rock in the solar system seen in 3D, because we can pretty much do that now. You can't do multiverses. <laughs> no, it's very low. <laughs> no, no, I mean, honestly, you know. That you give us the experience of being out there. We could fake it. We <laughs> <laughs> fake a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, I know a man who, that's a Bainio, we talked, who actually fakes stereoscopic images of nebulae and galaxies, but it's a trick. It's a trick based on some good research, but you can't actually think about it. You can only really apply cosmos spectroscopy within our solar system at the moment. We've got another question up there. I should say, I'm, because I'm staring this way, I'm neglecting this poor half of the audience. So if we can get the, the microphone down here next. But go on, fire away. Uh, I'd just like to say thank you to both of you for this evening. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm sort of thinking, as a potential for looking for life, which you both said is something you'd like to see, would you think that perhaps we should look in this solar system to see if there's something more on the Bone Moon to Jupiter that we've said, mm -hmm. rather than looking way, way out to make sure there's anything here first, before both, we look too really? far. I, I would say both. Yes, um, I, th I think we should, and of course, um, uh, what we're doing in the SETI program is um, uh, expend, spending just a few million dollars a year private funding, whereas even uh, uh, the most basic mission that would go under the ice of Enceladus or Europa would be probably a billion dollar mission. Uh, so I think uh, uh, if you consider what's being talked about in a serious way, it is indeed the idea of spending far more money on exploration in our solar system than in the SETI program. Another question just here. Thank you. Um, my question for both of you is, if safe human space travel was possible for anywhere in the solar system, where do you think you would like to go and why? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say Enceladus is calling. It's just you feel like there might be something there. That would be the most incredible thing to find. Mm -hmm. I think we need to convince everyone mm -hmm. on the planet. How about you? Yes. I, th I think I, I, would, I would say that it's the same. I mean, of course, it would not be comfortable to be there. Um, it's but, cold. Uh, um, uh, no, this, this is where we want to send, send a, a robot that can send back sort of virtual reality pictures what it's like there, and indeed under, under the ice. It's not crazy to imagine that you could have a, a probe that penetrates through the ice and actually looks for anything floating around. With a stereo camera. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay. 
There's another chap yeah. who wants to ask a question here. Is there one over here? Oh, yes. Can we do that one first? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'm neglecting you, Gareth. Hi. So, following on from the same sort of questions um, and thinking about intelligent life, you talk about technological intelligence and post-humans. With that idea, is there not a danger that there's a divergence between post-humans and post-aliens? And how would you understand the signal that you might get from a post-alien technological entity to the extent that you would actually recognize it? Um, well, I don't think we understand. I think the idea of a message you could decode is a sort of second-order probability. But I think uh, you could detect something which is manifestly not natural, um, and, uh, uh, or some artifact that is, is not natural. So I think that's the most I would hope for. I think you, the, uh, the idea um, that uh, there is uh, a message um, trying to attract our attention which we can decode uh, is possible, but that's a, a second order improbability. Uh, it would be great if that happened, um, and uh, in fact some guy in the 1960s called Freudenthal wrote a book um, called how you could develop a language for communication. You start by sending uh, mathematical statements and get a vocabulary for mathematics greater than, less than, and things like that. And then you could apply physics, and then you could generate a language. Um, but of course, the, uh, the problem is that the nearest such civilization would be uh, um, tens or hundreds of light years away, so no scope for snappy repartee. Another <laughs> <laughs> question here. Thanks, guys. Um, <clears throat> From a green sort of point of view, uh, do you think we're jumping the gun a little bit here to say, you know, this is going to happen in the future when, you know, there's, there's lots of problems currently on the planet? I think if, if you read Martin's book, which I'm about halfway through and I'm, I'm absolutely loving it, but terrifying though it is, I think there is an inevitability to it. Yes, there's all sorts of terrible things that can happen on the Earth, but there is no stopping this. The, the, the research is going so fast at the moment and the the advancing technological ability that we have. We've got, we've got to control it. I mean, there was a scary UN report saying that uh, a billion species may go extinct. Of the 10 billion species, most of which haven't been catalogued yet, so we'd be destroying the book of life before we're ready. And we've got to avoid that, that happening. And uh, this is um, uh, a motive for doing all we can to conserve the natural environment. And, of course, uh, um, this is important not just for us as humans, but because as Brown said, uh, it has value in its own right, mm. quite apart from its value to us. So I think that's a, that's a priority, and uh, uh, if it makes our food more expensive, so be it. Mm. Can I just add, I, one of the things I got from your book was the terrifying prospect that uh, the more and more sophisticated uh, our descendants become, our AI descendants, they can at some point decide that human beings, old-fashioned human beings like us, are not important anymore and in fact are a plague on the earth, and get rid of them. <laughs> if they're at the point where they're making decisions and we can't stop them, that's a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm realizing more and more, reading this <laughs> excellent <laughs> book. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's not all so gloomy as that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty gloomy, though, isn't it? Mean, it's, it's, it's pretty gloomy. gloomy. Just to explain that, I mean, the reason it's so gloomy is that um, uh, we've evolved because of uh, uh, two qualities. Uh, uh, being intelligent and being aggressive. That's important that we need to meet them. Um, in the case of uh, uh, machines, there's no particular reason why they've got to be aggressive. So that gives me some hope. And uh, uh, it may be quite a long time 
in my opinion, before we need to uh, worry more about uh, artificial intelligence than about real stupidity. <laughs> Next question. So a lot of what you guys are discussing obviously involves the future and, and the future of space technology, and obviously a lot of that hinges on you know young people like myself kind of coming into these fields and, and making these advances. But you know, so much of this information is you know blocked behind having to go to college or having to get a master's degree and not really having the the access, the general kind of public access to this, this information. For people like myself that kind of want to learn more about this but are not really science-minded, kind of what suggestions do you have? Would you suggest you know studying stereoscopic images or, or looking into reading books like that, or are there other kind of you know avenues to get into it other than you know higher education? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you need institutional higher education. I mean, you can buy these books. But there's a, a huge amount on the, on the internet. Indeed, um, uh, I think the, the scope for citizen scientists um, and, uh, and amateurs is far greater than ever, um, particularly in astronomy, which in the, in the rest of science, citizen scientists uh, will come. And I think one thing I say in my book, actually, is that um, it may be that the dominance of universities as research centres may be eroded when we go back to more uh, independent scientists rather like in the 19th century. Um, so I, I don't think we can assume that it will always be universities dominate research. And certainly for students and people who want to learn things, uh, they don't need to go to university. Yes, well, Chris Lindsay, and he has a new book, incidentally, which I also recommend. Chris has been involving the public in doing research. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned also that all these NASA and ESA experiments are funded by the taxpayer, and we do have access in here. They tend to hold on to it for a while because they want to work on it first. But in the end, it is all accessible. It's not that easy. But if you want to find out a piece of data from any time in the last 50 years, it is available. If you want to explore the Apollo story, there's, there's the most amazing material on the NASA website, actually, which I really recommend. Um, there's a question right over here. Oh, yes, fire away. I'd just like to ask the panel, obviously, the technical challenge of getting to the moon and back is a great achievement. Is the technical challenge of engineering and controlling the climate uh, going to be possible in a near period? Are you pro-geoengineering? Well, I mean, uh, uh, of course, what we really want to do um, to deal with the climate is to, uh, in my view, accelerate research and development into all kinds of clean energy and energy storage so that the cost comes down and we can afford um, to uh, depend on it. And more importantly, countries like India, which need to expand their energy consumption, will be able to leapfrog directly to clean energy and not build coal-powered power stations. So spending as much on energy R&D as on health, as on defense and medicine is, in my view, the top priority. Um, and if we can do that, then I think we can stabilize CO2 concentrations in the Earth. I'm uh, pessimistic about other ways of doing that. Now, geoengineering is the sort of plan B. If, if things seem to be rising to a dangerous level, then there's a possibility that we could cool down the Earth or cool down the Arctic by uh, putting some um, material in the higher atmosphere to block out some sunlight. This is possible. Indeed, it's frighteningly cheap. 
compared to uh, uh, other projects to deal with CO2. Um, but I think before being happy to do this, we've got to understand the climate far better than we do, because uh, uh, we don't understand the climate in general. We understand that CO2 is going to warm the world on average, but we don't know what it does, the weather patterns, the polar vortex, and all that. And I think it's very dangerous if we were to uh, have a geoengineering program before we understood its consequences better. And this may be a big international issue, actually, because it's possible for one nation, even one corporation, to put enough stuff in the atmosphere to change the climate. Um, and uh, you can imagine this happening, all kinds of litigation, and the only winners will be the lawyers, because if uh, uh, nations can litigate about bad weather, you can imagine for them, but not for anyone else. some elephants in the room and uh, apparently all the emissions of CO2 from all the gadgets that we have, the cars, the planes, the trains, whatever, is exceeded by animal farming. So if we just all stopped eating meat tomorrow, that would make the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have a and it's interesting seeing it. one of the US chains, let's have a look at that person over there is selling a impossible burger with no meat in it. Ah, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Surprising. I had an impossible burger. Fire away. Um, I'm interested in the overview effect. Astronauts talk about this amazing kind of transformation when they see the world with no borders. And uh, Michael Collins tweeted recently saying that you know, if he could take every world leader to orbit to just see the planet. And he talked about um, you know, we need to transform our character, you know, that's the next thing we do. If we concentrate on sending robots rather than people, do we lose some of that? Yeah, good point. Yeah. Well, there's a risk, but we, if we have the 3D and virtual reality, then we can all be given this uh, uh, same kind of impression, which uh, uh, in the past you had to uh, go to the moon to see. But I do remember one anecdote. I remember hearing a lecture by uh, Harrison Schmidt uh, and someone asked him at the end, uh, well, what uh, was your uh, uh, most memorable experience when you were on the moon? And he just sort of opened mouth and said, being there. Actually, <laughs> 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 okay, you've had both, haven't you? You've had the famous Earthrise image, which was an Apollo image, but then we've also had Voyager looking back on the solar system and this the pale amazing, blue dot. the pale blue dot, yeah, which yeah, is astonishing. Michael Collins should know more than anyone. Who's been the furthest away from humanity ever? And he, he was on the other side of the moon, looking at his colleagues here, and in the distance, the rest of humanity. So if you're talking the Roman League, saying, I'm going to advertise that. If you go to Starmus this year, you might meet Michael Collins. <laughs> He's also on Twitter, amazingly, which has just, just started up. Anyway, let's have the next uh, question. Hello there. Is that working? Yes, hello. Um, where do you believe black holes will see us anyway? Uh -huh. <laughs> Brian, do you want to go on oh. into Stella? <laughs> 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 uh, well, it's obvious, isn't it? I, mean, uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Well, no one knows. I mean, uh, most likely you are what's called in the technical terms 
forgetify your total past and uh, you go, but you won't be able to tell people outside what your experiences are because it's a lifetime state. It's no good me sending a student. They can never tell me <laughs> results. And of course in Interstellar, um, you're pretty sure this guy's going through the wormhole. And uh, in fact, I watched this uh, uh, film before it was released with the Times film critic and I said, this quote is, that uh, this guy seems to be shaking around like being on the Northern Line. <laughs> it is a black hole. Yeah. This is a question for Brian. Um, because the song that you wrote, 39, is about um, time dilation, do you think that with the advances of technology, that the inspiration behind the song could become a possibility? I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> Were you paid? <laughs> yes, I claim to be one of the very few people on this planet who have written a song inspired by general relativity. <laughs> and yes, it's, it, for those who don't know, it's the story of a man who goes off and explores the universe to try and find a place for humanity to go, because the Earth is, is running out of steam. I wrote this when I was quite young. What happens is he goes close to the speed of light, and by the time he comes back, he thinks he's been away for a year. His body has aged just one year, but to the people on Earth, it seems like it's maybe 100 years, maybe it's 200 years. Uh, and this is not really fantasy. This is actually what would happen. It's not really science fiction. It's very, very possible if we manage to attain those kind of speeds that, that, it, that it could come true. But I was interested in the human part of it more than anything else. I think what would it be like to come back and all your relations, your family, all your friends are gone and you're, you're effectively being thrust into the future and you're looking at your your grandparents, your grandchildren. And um, I thought it would be a very hard thing to do. So the song is about that. What was the question? Do you think that the inspiration behind it would become a possibility? With I think it could that? become a reality. Yes, I do. Yeah. Let's have another question on from this side. We've got a couple more minutes left, so uh, let's, let's try and pack in quickly. Uh, just wondering, uh, if you were to imagine life on Europa, what do you think it would look like? How would it evolve? How would it evolve? No. No idea. He's <laughs> very white and spindly. Who could predict those creatures they found six miles down in the ocean? You just don't know. Answer to the postcard. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of hands going up. So let's have the next one over here. Max? Why do you think um, humans will first set foot on Mars? When will humans <laughs> first set foot? I would bet in 25 years. That would be a uh, uh, private company. Hmm. I would guess sooner, because Elon Musk gets his stuff in there. Uh, who knows? Let's have another question from this side. Um, just over here. Hi. Um, you've all talked about lack of communication between Russian cosmonauts and American astronauts and about rivalries between uh, scientists. Do you think, um, apart from the um, technological challenges, we need to overcome our prejudices as human beings in order to drive things forward? 
an interesting question. There is an irony, isn't there, which we sort of touched on. You know, we, we regard the progress as being made by people coming together and cooperating, but that's not what happened. That's not how we got to the moon. It was because of the enmity and the, uh, the striving to beat the other guy who got there. So what would you say, Mike? Yeah. Well, of course, that was really not a scientific project. It was a kind of war project. But I think uh, I would say that uh, uh, scientists are the group who can more easily uh, uh, transition uh, boundaries of nationality and of faith because science is a common culture. Photons and proteins are the same everywhere in the world, and uh, we all look out in the same sky. So I think scientists are better at bridging gaps than uh, most other uh, groups of people professionally. It should be said, though, Martin, to admit that there are, <laughs> I, I seem to remember Jim Lovell came to the Museum of Apollo 13, and he, he believed that the next step would have to be an international cooperative venture. And there, there is that. I, I know you, you think it's going to be Elon Musk, but there are, there are quite a few people who think that China is going to have to cooperate with America or with India or whatever to make yeah. the next big leap. Well, they are, but the question is, will they be motivated to do it? Yeah. Bill Coxon kind of very presentably on the entire cost. So um, that's why I think there are some things like you know, climate change that have to involve the entire world and, um, and uh, regulations and all that. Uh, whereas I, I think that uh, space exploration by human beings needn't be of that kind. Um, these people are grabbing like we will explore it as well as humanity, but it'll be a few, a few people, a few adventurous people who will be the pioneers. Let's have one very long, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Very quickly, just, it's interesting that um, Trump has already set out the next phase as a race, hasn't he? He's already made it a competition. Mm -hmm. So I, I would guess there would not be competition, there would not be cooperation between Trump and, and the Chinese. Scientists would want to, but yeah. the, the world leaders will not. <laughs> 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 One more. Hi, I was um, I was wondering. Suppose we do land on Mars and create successful bases on it, like colonies. Do you think someday? Obviously, it'll take a lot, a lot of resource endeavors. But could we maybe create a planet or a moon habitable? You know, breathable atmosphere, gravity, heat, right temperature. Terraforming. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yes, well, I mean, well, um, uh, we couldn't change the gravity properly, but uh, but one could, uh, uh, over several centuries, create an atmosphere. In fact, we've, we've, uh, Robert Zubrin is a person who's uh, thought about the cheapest way to get to the get to Mars and uh, how we could transform it. So it's it's not crazy to do this if there was a motive and if you wait several centuries. But uh, what is a dangerous delusion is thinking that we can go there and do this more easily than people of climate change here on Earth. Well, look, thank you so much for those brilliant <laughs> questions. Uh, there will be copies of both these books available on sale. I mean, sadly, uh, Brian has to dash off, but Martin will be here uh, to sign books. And um, just very finally, good night, and do give these two brilliant speakers one last round of applause. <laughs>